I read this novel as not having a very happy ending to me. I, I just, again, want to reiterate that Harriet just gets raked through the coals through this whole novel. I, it's crazy. I don't think it's particularly happy for Emma either. Yeah? Yeah. Okay, so, so here's why. Welcome, friends, to episode 219 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss Jane Austen's 1816 novel, Emma. All right, we're back in the genteel world of Regency-era England for uh, our second Jane Austen novel. We did Pride and Prejudice last year. Um, but that, yeah, that was our first time doing this kind of book, and, and now we're revisiting and uh, Austin didn't have a very long career, but this one comes towards the end of it, whereas Pride and Prejudice was towards the beginning. So it's a little bit of a bookends, kind of. I, there was one novel that came out uh, posthumously, but this was the last novel that was published while she was alive. Um, so it's pretty late in her career. Um, so I, I don't, it's an interesting little kind of bookend to that. I assumed that this was after Pride and Prejudice because it just felt like sort of re- evaluating the genre a little bit, mm. finding other ways to tap into it. Um, still, some of the same themes are touched on, I think, like, you know, romances at the at the core of it. And, and even if you don't think the main character maybe has uh, some romance in, in the storyline at first, which I found to be, like, refreshing and fun, and you're like, oh, it's, you know, love is very, roman- romance and love is very core to the story, yeah. but it's not specifically about our main character, and then, you know, we get the story unfolding. Yeah. Uh, where uh, that's not the case. Early on, she says something about how she would never marry. She doesn't think she's ever going to marry and all this stuff. Uh, yeah. Very different. Very different than, uh, was it Elizabeth Bennett? Uh, yeah. Yeah. This, this Emma is is a very different uh, kind of character. And the, the, I think we're going to be comparing those two a little bit. How did you how did you like this book? How did it compare, first off, to Pride and Prejudice, but then just in general as a book? How did you like it? I think it felt very similar to the way that I felt about Pride and Prejudice. With the caveat being, I think I enjoyed this more. So this isn't our typical genre. I'm not super well versed in romance, and I would consider this almost like a com- like a romantic comedy, or like it's kind of a com- yeah. it's kind of a funny book. It's called a comedy of manners. I was seeing is is technically what it is, but you're right. It is supposed to be funny, and I think realizing that was was part of. I had a kind of a journey with this book. I think, and that that was. One of the things was like realizing, okay, this is supposed to be a comedy. The way, just the way that the main character views the world, Emma, right away, sets you up for, you know, a strong character, a clever character, um, and that continues through. But uh, the way that the story unfolded, like, I found myself enjoying it a lot in the beginning, and then there's sort of a lot of that status that we we you know became accustomed to with Pride and Prejudice the, the that Jane Austen I think has a fascinating relationship with because we talked about her her life and the way that she was writing maybe sometimes about societies that she knew about and sometimes societies she didn't know about it, this one especially Emma has an interesting relationship with status and the way that like 
there can be like virtue signaling that happens with with like the upper classes. But at the same time, I think it's like wish fulfillment sometimes for for people to read these sort of stories of high society of things that they get up to because they don't have to work all the time. They can they can live these lavish lives and and they can afford to play matchmaker. They can afford to play games with people's lives and and the way that that can be like a, a thing that you see is like, oh, that would be so much fun. But at the same time, the status of playing with someone's life as someone who is a high status p- person within this society is kind of, you know, it, I think Jane Austen's making, making an, uh, taking a side there kind of saying like, isn't this, it's, it's interesting and something to strive for. And I find it interesting as well, but also look at the dark side of it in ways. Well, there's a little bit of an inherent conflict between at least that I was picking up on between the narrator and Emma. So for the most part, we're close to Emma's point of view. And even at times, um, we get that sort of direct thought that is almost as if dialogue, yet it is not in quotations. Um, And this is a very common technique that's used in modern writing. Um, But it was still pretty new. And I think uh, Austin is sort of famous for doing this. And that's one of the reasons why she's considered one of the first people to write like a modern novel um, is using techniques like this. And while that is occurring, there is still a sort of a disconnect between that and the narrative voice at times, where the narrative voice feels to me almost like Austin herself, or or maybe just like an older person who's part of the same society, who is maybe a little bit judgmental of, of Emma, kind of knows a little better. Um, tough to say who exactly it is, but... Um, at the, the very first line of the novel is Emma Woodhouse, handsome, clever, and rich, with a comfortable home and a happy disposition, had lived nearly 21 years in the world with very little to distress or vex her. And so you can start to t- pick up on a little bit. There's like a little bit of judgment there, right? Like she's, she's like, oh, she's great, but there's been very little to bother her. Never worried a day in her life. Exactly. So it's almost like uh, a faint praise, like damning a faint praise kind of thing. But also at the same time, someone who's gone through a lot might see that and say like, oh, if only. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting because I read that there was a quote from uh, Austin where she said uh, she wanted to write a heroine that no one but myself would like very much. Um, Which I think is not, has proven to not be true because a lot of people do like Emma, but she kind of set out to make Emma a little bit different than her other heroines and and her other novels, I think, deliberately. And and it's interesting to see how that played out. But I want to talk a little bit about my experience reading this book. So last year, I I think when we did our last looks, Pride and Prejudice ended up being my least favorite read of the year. And it wasn't that it was a bad read. It's just not my... Like, ultimately, we all have taste, right? And we all have things that interest us. And for me, I just... It didn't interest me that much. And it felt a bit loaded with a lot of language and a lot of fluff that if if you're there for the fluff you're gonna love it but if you're if you if you just find it kind of eh then it's 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 a lot and and i i had a similar problem with this book where there's a lot of this we're going to explore the nuances of this very specific society and the very particular manners they're using and it's the interplay of these characters with very subtle, different social standings and tons of misunderstandings. There's lots of misunderstandings in this book. Um, 
and how those all intersect creates some some tension and some irony and some some funny situations but also some drama um but it's all at a remove to me um and that is just not the kind of writing i typically like um i can appreciate it right like i can appreciate that the language um is extremely rich and clever um and if you look at any given paragraph of austin you read it it's like okay i can see why she's so beloved because this is really well written and it's it's kind of like Shakespeare in that you can really look at it um, and and suss out a lot from just how rich the language is. Um, and it's funny because we just covered Shakespeare. So I, I had a similar journey with this where I had to sort of accustom myself to the language, like we talked about with Shakespeare, where I had to get used to it and, and, and kind of fall into a rhythm with it um, to where I could even feel comfortable uh, sort of following it. So that was part of the journey. And then the other part of the journey was I had to realize, and at a certain point in the book, to me, I realized that there was somewhat of a mystery going on. And I didn't get there for a while. I was like, why? What, what, is, what is the point? Like, I don't care about any of this. She's just kind of messing with Harriet. She's, she's trying to do her, her sort of matchmaking stuff. And like, it's, mo- it's moderately entertaining. I think her father's hilarious. Like, there's certain things that I really liked. But like, for the most part, it was a lot of just kind of like, moving stuff around and not much is happening. There's not a lot of plot in this book, um, which I read some of the, some of the initial criticisms of the book at the time were like, it's got some interesting characters, but there's no plot. I found myself when I was reading Emma thinking about Pride and Prejudice and then also thinking about how like, I don't know when Emma was written specifically, but how it seems to me that it's sort of like a, a watershed moment, watershed sort of project, at least in terms of like, like you said, modern romance, mm-hmm. almost like romantic comedy. And then I, it got me thinking a little bit about um, other things that it's like. And I was thinking about shows like uh, Downton Abbey and this idea of like it being so much about status and the, the interplay between the characters. Well, that's, and, also, is that, that's also like Regency era, right? Or is it a little bit, it's a little bit later. I haven't actually watched it. Yeah, it's later. I'm aware of Downton Abbey. I've never, I've never watched. It. <laughs> there's, there's another show that's I believe from the same creators now on HBO called like The Gilded Age. And and it's again that sort of thing. It's high society, mm-hmm. uh, the you know how people are interacting within and like vying for either not even necessarily vying for power, but vying for status mm-hmm. and and the outward appearance. Reputation is like everything. Yeah, and, and I think that it's it's this particular genre that you either like really click into or really don't. Mm-hmm. And but after even saying that, I find myself somewhere in between. It's it's it's. Yeah, like I, I, I do enjoy it. I like watching it, but I, I, I will admit that it's not the thing. Like I don't choose to watch it, but when say like I watch it with my girlfriend or something, I do really enjoy it. I'm like, oh, I understand. I am also making a distinction between this book and films in this genre because I actually really enjoyed the Pride and Prejudice film that we covered. Um, a lot more than I even expected to. That's, a, I mean, that's a good point to make too, because I, I think I agree yeah, with you. Yeah, I, I think, I think there's something about put like a condensing it down to like a two and a half hour thing, um, and and giving performance, much like with with Shakespeare, like it it brings it breathes life into the language in a way that um is is kind of more difficult for me as a reader, um and and once again here I found myself looking forward to the movie. Because I think I'm going to get this story a lot better. And, f- and and I think the comedy is just going to land. Now, of course, it's modern. So it's going to be modernized in some way. Um, but 
I'm really curious to see how faithful it is, how how much they change the jokes, how, which ones they which ones they decide to lean in on, and which ones they avoid. Um, yeah, I'm really curious for that. But uh, so I was saying that it, it's I was think I feel like this is kind of a mystery, and to me it was this mystery. The mystery that that carries throughout is who likes who, and why are people behaving strangely, and what is Emma gonna like misunderstand next <laughs> how is she gonna somehow like try and do something that is gonna like confuse somebody and it's going to make somebody else think that she actually wants this one thing when she really wants something else and then they're gonna be talking about you know one character but then she's gonna think they're talking about she's talking about a different character and um why why what's going on there because there's some sort of stuff going on in the background there's like there's, there's some secrets right and i started picking up on like okay people got some secrets and we're gonna get some reveals eventually um i will say i did pick up on mr knightley being the eventual love interest for emma pretty yeah. early on it kind of and and i i agree i i picked up on it pretty early on and it, you know what it was for me was the their banter yeah the way that they argued and the, the genuine nature of that and it reminded me of pride and prejudice where like the arguments that they get into are the like the, the you know you can't see the forest through the trees or you can't see what's right in front of your nose um because you're so focused on like this idea of somebody who i could end up with or something like that and um yeah i, I I don't know if it's a if it's a trope that she leans into, but I do kind of like it because it's true. To, in my opinion, it's true to life. Like you, everybody goes around thinking, oh, my soulmate is out there somewhere. And like, I think when you realize like how life works and how genuine love connections can be, it doesn't have it, it isn't this perfect thing, this idealized version of a relationship. And, and I think once you wrap your brain around that, then you can I, I think you'll find your soulmate very quickly. So. I mean, I agree with that. But so one thing that I find really infinitely fascinating about Austin, and it's not something I appreciated until we covered Pride and Prejudice, is how short her career was, how she did not have fame while she was alive. And we can talk about that. Like, this is like one of her like more well-known novels. And even then, it's not much. In terms of sales or what do you mean? In terms of sales. So like, here, let yeah. me talk. Let me let's just tell you about it a little bit. So Emma was written after the publication of Pride and Prejudice and was submitted to London publisher John Murray II in the autumn of 1815. He offered Austin 450 pounds uh, for this, plus the copyrights for Mansfield Park and Sense and Sensibility, which she refused. So she had written both of those books, I think, between the two. Um, instead, she published 2,000 copies of a novel at her own expense, retaining the copyright and paying 10% commission to Murray. The publication in December of 1815 was dated for 1816, like in the in the actual book, um, and it consisted of a three-volume set at, at a selling price of 1.1s, which is one guinea per set. Um, so I don't know how that all converts, but um, I was reading that... Uh, uh, like I think of Sense and Sensibility did not like one of one of her books did not sell well at all, and then like this sold okay. Mansfield Park ended up selling well if I'm remembering correctly, regardless of which ones it was. Basically, like the, her novels that were selling well were selling just well enough to cover the expense of publishing the novels that didn't sell as well. Um, her novels were exploding in popularity in France. Um, but she wasn't seeing a dime of that because it was unlicensed. People just translating it, and there was no there was no copyright or anything. You've yet to name like I've heard of all of those titles. You know, like those are all like kind of massive 
landmark novels. Well, yeah, I mean, she she didn't write that many books. Um, let me let me, let me pull up the the bio. So we talked about her bio uh, more extensively in Pride and Prejudice. So if you want to hear more about Jane Austen, which I recommend you do, because she's a very interesting person. Um, check out that episode. But uh, yeah, let me. I'll just say, you know, she died when she was 42 um, from a mysterious illness. We don't really know. She died in 1817. So this book was published in 1816. So wow. regardless of how well it did, it wasn't. She wasn't around for long to appreciate to like see anything from it. Um, she had a novel called Persuasion that would come out um, after after she had died. But it really wasn't until we talked about it last time. It was like this period of, of time lapsed, and then all of a sudden insanely popular like it, it exploded in popularity and her books have been in, in print ever since i mean one of the most notable authors yeah. potentially ever right right so novels she wrote sense and sensibility in 1811 so we're talking she published 1811 and then she she died in 1817 you know what i mean so sense and sensibility pride and prejudice then mansfield park now pride and prejudice did get make make a little bit of a name for her um, in, in particular, aristocracy and people of this of this like social standing really liked these books because it was all about them, basically, <laughs> which makes sense because I feel like that was mainly her audience was who she expected to like these books. Right. Um, so Mansfield Park, 1814, Emma, 1815. Then she wrote uh, Northanger Abbey, Persuasion and Lady Susan. But those all came out posthumously. Lady Susan in 1871. So way later. Um, Northanger Ab- Abbey came out in 1818, as did Persuasion. Um, so those are books she had written before she died, but came out later. So, I mean, that's it. She, she has some other like stuff she wrote, um, but not, not novels. So, you know, prolific during her time, but very short publishing career. And then she, you know, died very young. What I was trying to get at is it's, to me, it's really interesting to look at the legacy of this writing, because it seems clear to me that she was writing with the expectation of, the people who are of the class and 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 character of these of these people are going to be my main audience and then maybe other people will want to read about it cuz they'll think like oh this is kind of cool but like i don't think she thought it was going to be ever ever would have dreamed it was going to be some sort of massive hit right um and it's gone on to become that and essentially create a genre in and of itself um, and, and I'm curious if she had any inkling of that happening while she was alive. Um, maybe the, the you know, I, she had heard about the publication in, 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 in France. So maybe that gave her a sense that like, maybe it is kind of popular. It's interesting that it has gone on in our modern day to continue to be popular. Um, because there's something about this period that people gravitate to and this lifestyle that's, it's, it's like kind of fairy tale. It's like, I don't know. It's like that comforting, warm thing we talked about, right? Like to me, I always think of like my my version of this is like Middle Earth, like uh, like Hobbiton, the Shire. Like it's something that like I just it makes me feel at home and warm and cozy. And I think a lot of people feel this way when they look at Regency era like houses and clothing and like balls and like they just feel like this is the this is like peak life, you know, and it, even if it isn't really, there's just something appealing about reading about this kind of worlding, these kind of people. I continue to think that there's a couple, there's some universal uh, things that people relate to and also like are drawn to like this idea of 
people people wanting to live in a world where their biggest worries are what the person down the street thinks of them. You know what I mean? Those kinds of things are it's a great escape escapism tool, not to mention just like fascinating inner interpersonal relationships and things like that. But then also I between these two books that we've read, I found um key relatability as like attributes to the, these characters. Like Emma for instance has is like has this high status, is is rich, all these other things, uh, clever. And then at the same time is a character who doesn't apply herself. And I think everyone can see themselves in that at some time or another. Like, like you know, you're feeling like you're not fully applying yourself to, in the way that you could be in order to be as successful or to, to do whatever you want to do. I, I think that the, there's... Or at least you know somebody you, like that, right? Right. Yeah. And I think people build... I think Jane Austen building that into her characters helps to make it relatable to whoever reads it. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And so uh, there is a relatability in the characters, uh, you know, somewhat. Uh, so there are things I liked better about Pride and Prejudice, and there are things I like better about Emma. I felt like Pride and Prejudice tapped into the emotions in a more raw and passionate way, whereas Emma often felt removed We'd, we'd come up to a sort of powerful moment that could have happened and it would happen, but it would hap- we'd be told about it through like a filter of mm-hmm. it would become it would become like described instead of given as a scene. And, and it, it was like um, it, like I felt like the author pulling back. Now, you could say that maybe that is her sense of sort of decorum and that that is like. It's not like uh, proper for this genteel person to be like talking about the passions of these characters. Fade to black kind of thing, like time to, you know, pan away to the window. Well, that's for like a lovemaking scene. But we're even talking about like the moments where like, uh, uh, you know, a character comes on to another one or when, you know, like professes their love. A lot of that we don't get in direct dialogue. We just get like that it's reported to us that it happened. Um and and I felt like there were, was more direct engagement with the sort of emotion of the moment in Pride and Prejudice, which I like in my writing. Like, I want to read about the powerful emotions of these situations. I want to connect with that. I want to feel them vicariously through the characters. And when that's denied to me, I would get frustrated. And so that's one of the things I got pretty frustrated with this novel, on top of everything else I already kind of talked about that, that keeps me back at a distance the refusal to like get in there and get to the emotional core of these scenes sometimes bothered me. Um, I get why she did it. I think it was just, it was a choice, um, but it just again it doesn't really appeal to the kind of writing I like to read. But I think Emma is a lot more interesting, flawed character than Elizabeth Bennet. Um, I, I really like how sort of clever and. Um, self-destructive she can be and without even realizing it like she's too clever for her own good so she doesn't realize like how she's like potentially hurting people or screwing things up for herself because she's just kind of bored and wanting to like mess around with stuff and talking circles around people i like that kind of a character it's interesting to me i remember elizabeth having a little bit of that being kind of one of the smartest people in the room and and um, but like, I, I understand what you're saying with Emma. Like there's something about her character that like that, that is her character, you know, like is getting up to no good, almost like mischievous in like yeah. a, in like a, not in a dark way. Well, though. and she lies to herself a lot. Uh, I noticed, I noticed she would repeatedly 
come to the realization that she'd made a mistake. And then she would double down on it or make the same mistake again in a different way. Even after she just talked about how I'm not going to do that again. Like she'd immediately start doing it again. And I was like, this is all intentional, right? It's like it's something to do with with like the lies that we tell ourselves sometimes or something or like the ways we can like talk ourselves out of things or into things. And that, that was interesting. That was all interesting to me. Um, but this this book is long. And um, it felt like there was a lot of this kind of stuff, these little these little manipulations, but then also these conversations where you're you're sort of sussing out little hints and, and breadcrumbs at the mysteries. And if you get really into it and you really care about who this character likes and you really, truly care about, you know, the fate of Harriet, who she's going to end up with, and you you really get into that, I think you're going to like this book a lot more than I did because ultimately, while I have a passing interest, like I get that that's what this novel is about, so I'm interested, it's not something I, I'm like dying to know. Like I just don't, I just don't care that much. Um, and because of that, those scenes tend to be more dull to me than they are to someone who is really bought in on the discovering the mystery of this. Yeah, I think we're pretty much on the same page there. Like, while I did enjoy many scenes in this story, there were some that I was like, oh, I really want to get through this because I'm not super interested in what's happening right now. So little vignettes where there'd be like a scene, she'd meet somebody would meet with somebody, there's a dinner party, something. And like a lot of times, like the wittiness of the characters talking back and forth and the, just like the... I, I was into that, but then it felt like some of the scenes were kind of dragging along. And it is a pretty long book for, for how light of a story this kind of feels like it is, in, in a sense. Well, and you don't get those emotional beats that I connect with. I was missing, like, strong emotional beats for me. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, and and, and honestly, I have, I've only read it once, Pride and Prejudice, obviously this. Um, and maybe I'm thinking, maybe I'm, I've conflated it a little bit with the movie, which I did like quite a bit. So I, I'm wondering if that might be coloring because, yeah, it might be coloring my opinion of the last book a little bit. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how this movie will color our opinion yeah. of this, yeah, exactly. this book here. I think if you're ready, I'd like to get into summary so we can actually talk about some specifics. So Emma begins by asserting that the eponymous protagonist has every advantage that an early 19th century young lady could wish for. Emma Woodhouse who lives in a fictional town of Highbury in southern England, has good looks, intelligence, and a 30,000-pound fortune, which means she never has to leave Hartfield, the home where she lives with her doting father, Mr. Woodhouse. When her governess, Miss Taylor, leaves Hartfield to marry Mr. Weston, Emma is left with ample leisure time. As she has no inducement to marry, she decides that she will occupy herself by making a match for her new friend, the unsophisticated but beautiful Harriet Smith. She urges Harriet to reject the proposal of a young farmer, Robert Martin, in favor of pursuing Highbury's handsome vicar, Mr. Elton. When Emma's long-standing family friend and brother-in-law, Mr. Knightley, learns of her interference in Harriet's love life, he criticizes her, warning that she is so deluded by Harriet's beauty that she overlooks the stigma of her lower social status, which will deter higher-born suitors, such as Mr. Elton. When Emma sees that Mr. Elton is a willing participant in her schemes to get him close to Harriet, she thinks that Mr. Knightley will be proven wrong. However, when she learns that she is the true object of Mr. Elton's intentions, Emma is humbled and resolves to do no more matchmaking. Yeah, we got, we got all these different guys introduced um i felt bad for this farmer guy 
I feel bad for Harriet. Harriet, of course. The entire time. She likes him. She likes uh, 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 this farmer, Martin, Mr. Martin. Um, and, and Emma's like, no, no, no. He's a farmer. You can do better than that. And she's basing it off of nothing. Like She doesn't know anything about Harriet other than Harriet's beautiful, um, which I think the, the narrator kind of points out. Um, and this this one, like, the sort of way that Emma repeatedly goes to class is like her she has people in boxes right and I know that's the way the society works but like for whatever reason it was more egregious for me this time I was having more trouble like accepting that that's the society we live in because if you think about it like I read a fantasy where there's like a princess and a king and a and a prince and, a, and like they have servants and they live in a castle like I'm not I, I know it's inherently unjust, but I'm like I'm along for the ride. I'm like, okay, they have servants. It's fine. But here, for whatever reason, like her talking shit about this farmer and how he's like not, you know, like he's 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 fine, but he's not good enough for you. Like, I, I don't know. It just bothered me more. Um, and I think it, it maybe it does come back to like the the genre and the like period. Like <laughs> what, what is the thing that you like attach to at a young age? And I think a lot of people at a young age, like this kind of stuff is their thing. And, and like, you know, the I think the other difference being that like fantasy is just it's just that it's fantasy, whereas this is like pretty close to the real That's world. True. So you're seeing these people treating people differently and you're like, oh, this person's lower class. You can't. And you're like, well you know, that's a working class person. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's like, it's too real almost. Cause it's, you know, actually how our society has functioned for a long time. Right. Uh, but I do feel like you have to kind of shut that off to enjoy this book. Right. Yeah, like, I, I, I think because so, yeah. if you start thinking too much about that, you're going to, it's going to bother. You're not going to like any of these people. Right. Right. <laughs> that's a different, and that's not the novel you're reading. I, I'm waiting for the Jane Austen <laughs> book where somebody's just like anarchy <laughs> yeah. and they're just running around. Yeah. Yeah. No, that doesn't happen. <laughs> um, okay. So, uh, other, let's see other characters we want to talk about here. Uh, Mr. Elton. So Mr. Elton, um, there's like a really funny scene where Emma has painted Harriet like a portrait of Harriet and Mr. Elton. And sh- and she's like, she knows that she didn't do a great job. She's like, it looks okay. I tried to make Harriet look as beautiful as I could. Um, even if the proportions aren't perfect. Right. And so then there's this conversation starts happening about like, whether or not the, the proportions are right or like how well it was painted. And then like Mr. Elton comes to her defense. He's like, Oh no, no, you don't see that. That's all the artist's eye. And it's the intention. And like, he's defending the art. Clearly because he has feelings for Emma, but she interprets that as he actually really likes Harriet. And that's why he's defending the art of Harriet because he finds her to be beautiful. And these kind of like subtle misunderstandings are like part, like that's the bread and butter of this book. Like it's a bunch of this kind of stuff happening over and over again. (laughs) Where like if people were just communicating more openly. It's because they're all speaking in this like coded language and nobody can say what they mean. Everybody has to kind of talk around it. Yeah. It's like you, the language is kind of fun, but it's also kind of frustrating in that way. I don't know. Yeah. I I don't know. It, It also plays back into that thing I was talking about before where like all of this is a game, right? These people are have so little going on in their lives that all everything they do is a game. Even the way that they talk to other people, they have to like try to to maintain this facade that they're smarter than everybody else. They're more interesting than everybody else. They have better hobbies, better friends that in itself leads to people sort of messing that up along the way. And like you said, creates drama. Yeah. So, I mean, we are eventually going to find out here about Mr. Elton. I think I kind of jumped ahead a little bit, but um, I do want to mention just Mr. Woodhouse, uh, her father. Um, I just, I, I loved his lines. Like, 
he just constantly like at first at first I think it's supposed to be kind of annoying, but like I don't know why it just turned to completely hilarious to me. But just how he I think it was there was a moment early where he was talking about how you don't want to go outdoors because outdoors is notoriously like bad for you. He's like, you don't, don't go outdoors. And, and it was so like over the top because he, he's so worried about health all the time. And he's worried about the sea. Like later on, he starts talking about the sea and the sea air and how it's it's bad for you. It'll give you a cough and you'll get a cold. And then it's like, and then he's talking about like being around people who've, who've had colds. And like, I don't know. He's like so obsessed with his health. Um, first off, kind of relatable in, in, you know, these years. But like how much he comes back to that, like that's his sole defining characteristic is like he's always complaining about like this room's drafty, you know, like this, he's that kind of guy. He wants to drink thin. He wants, we should all have our gruel now. This gruel needs to be thinner. Then you get, a, I can never get a properly thin gruel, you know, and it's like, he's, like, I don't know what it is. It's so weird. Didn't but. we have a similar note on, not note, but then we have a similar observation on, on Elizabeth's mother or something yeah. or, or her father, maybe. No, 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 I think it was her mother. So I did read somewhere that, um, this book is actually could be viewed as a gender reversal of Pride and Prejudice. And a lot of the major characters have like okay. sort of flipped their roles. Um, I didn't I didn't look at the exact breakdown, but like there's a lot of these like where exactly like it would be the mother is the, now the father for Emma. Um, that kind of stuff. I don't know. There, there, I saw some of that. I It wasn't something that I had like thought of myself, so I didn't pursue it. But I did see that somebody had made that observation that maybe she was playing around with the idea of just sort of gender swapping a lot of these characters and seeing how it plays out. Yeah. Just reversing the whole like genre that she's created. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing, right? We talked about I think we talked about this in our last one. Like people don't know, like it, it, it seems to be the consensus that she was sort of conservative in her political life. Yet you can look at a lot of these books as being kind of feminist, but only to an extent, right? And so, like, you can read it as a feminist work or you can read it as, like, a conservative, you know, like, staple. Like, you can read it either way. And it's because, like, she's creating sort of strong women within this society who are capable and vivacious and passionate and intelligent, right? And that's not the typical women that you would see, um, in, in these in books of the time. And the, those are the characters people love. Like they're the main characters, right? Like you're, you're attaching to the, the women of these books. And that in and of itself is a kind of a feminist act. Yet a lot of the messaging of the book sort of is all about a return to status quo. And we can talk about in this novel, another, another return to status quo happens at the end. So I don't know. It's an interesting debate to have. And it's fascinating because you're talking about a person who had such a short life and, and wasn't famous in her time. So like, it's impossible to know at this point, right? We're just going off of like some family members who kind of knew her talking about her 50 years later. And like, yeah. And it's, it's interesting to think like artists don't do things. Most of the time artists don't do things by accident, right? Like if you're, if you're adding these sort of things, you're you're intentionally changing the story in a certain in a certain way and to add that layer is to you know have thought over it a lot and then also to not only have just thought over it once but then repeated like returning to that idea feels to me like i I don't know i i who who how could i possibly pick the brain of somebody from 200 years ago but it seems like i mean it's probably somewhere in the middle right like it has to be somewhere in the middle yeah it's not it's obviously she's not a radical feminist like that's not what these books are 
But I also don't think it's accurate to say there is no hint of feminism in these books when I think there clearly is. Because like you said, the, the characters for the majority of the books do push back, push against the, the status quo of the time. Yeah, yeah. And they're, they're finding ways to, to strive for independence and, and agency within this very boxed in world, Where, which again, like this book in particular felt almost like they were in a prison of their own making. Like it's a very fluffy, nice prison, but like they're, they're stuck in this. Like she's stuck at home and she doesn't get to leave by the end. There's that scene where the character, I forget which character it is, is just talking about her carriage and her, her how nice her carriage is. And I, I kept thinking about how these like they're just like they're like going going about town looking out at the riffraff yeah and like they're in their little cages like you said yeah you know and that's not really what the book's about but that is like a subtext kind of i don't know and it's like is that even really there within the text or is that just our perspective on it i don't know um okay let me read the second paragraph here the new year brings some new arrivals to highbury these include mr elton's new wife the overbearing mrs elton Jane Fairfax, the accomplished, attractive niece of Emma's tiresome neighbors, and Frank Churchill, Mr. Weston's son from his first marriage to the highborn Mrs. Churchill. Frank claims that he had to keep putting off his visit to Highbury owing to the interventions of his aunt, Mrs. Churchill, who disapproved of his parents' marriage. For Emma, Frank is the most eagerly anticipated of these arrivals, as he is reportedly a handsome young man of about her age, and she is eager to be romantically attached to him, even if she does not wish to marry. While Frank is undoubtedly attractive, he and Emma fall into an easy friendship, as he entertains her unfounded notion that cold, reserved Jane Fairfax is passionately in love with her brother-in-law, Mr. Dixon. Although Emma understands that she ought to pity Jane Fairfax— who will have to leave her comfortable life with the family who raised her to become a governess. She cannot help disliking Jane because the latter's talents make her feel inferior. Guided by her dislike of Jane and by Frank's affirmations that he finds Jane unattractive, Emma overlooks the clues which indicate a secret attachment between Frank and Jane. If you don't know this novel and you listen to that, I think you're a little confused. <laughs> um, and that's kind of how the plot of this book goes, right? There's a lot of this, like, this person likes this person, and this person shows up and is talking about this person, and it's an insult to this person, and it all. And there's a lot of misunderstandings. Um, this is where the mystery element comes yeah. in, too, right? Like, this is this whole section is kind of the mystery section right. in the middle, um, which I did find to be engaging once it started to get going in earnest. So let's talk about Jane Fairfax, because I think this is a, sort of an interesting character who isn't really super fleshed out, but um, is is someone who Emma is clearly envious of. And her envy of her makes her dislike her. And this is not a very, I don't know, attractive quality in a person right to have this sort of thing like to, to envy like yeah, uh, like being jealous of someone and then disliking them because you're jealous of them i guess a pretty shitty thing to to do of course so but that, but yeah. people are irrational and like having a flaw like this i think some people will see this and think there's a relatability to that because you people are jealous people are envious and you can you can see that becoming so intense that you you might hate somebody sure um, and I agree with that. I, I think it's it's great to, that Emma is so flawed, but there there is a like she does feel bad about it later, right? But I was I felt like I was still kind of denied the 
like kind of comeuppance that I thought you would usually get from this kind of thing. I, I, I couldn't stop thinking about how Jane Fairfax in, in another Jane Austen novel may have been the main character. Yeah, she has kind of interesting story, right? Like she was um, she was an orphan and she she's now potentially going to lose her status because she's going to become this governess. Isn't that that sounds so similar to Pride and Prejudice to me, just off of memory. Maybe. I, I don't remember yeah. for sure. I can't remember for sure. But like and then the, the, the reason they, you know, we're about to get into is a reveal that she's secretly engaged to Frank. And the reason they kept it a secret is because the aunt would disapprove of him marrying someone who doesn't have the like prospects and the, the sort of riches because of her, you know, sort of like unsteady ground. And that, like, I don't know, like, she she's already, like, her, her her place in society is so unsteady compared to Emma's, who's, like, pretty solid. I'm like, why are you jealous of her? Like, I don't know. Yeah, it's definitely irrational. I'm not, I agree with you. Yeah. It, and and I think maybe it's, it we're maybe supposed to read that it's because Mr. Knightley seems like he kind of likes her. Like, not necessarily romantically, but he... He feels sorry he's for impressed her. By he's her. impressed like, by her. He yeah. find he likes her singing, I think, or her playing. And well, and he get doesn't he get after Emma? Like he gets pissed at Emma because she's treating like kind of treating her this well, way. Well, sure, he's the one who kind of yeah. scolds her throughout. Um, yeah. Or I, I, you know what it is? I think she like doesn't she make a dig at F- Jane Fairfax's grandmother or something? Yeah. So uh, yeah, you're talking about you're talking about what's her name, Mrs. Bates. Yeah. So Miss Bates is another pretty funny character. Um, and she, her whole thing is she just talks and talks and talks. She just goes yeah. on and on and on. And she just like prattles on, says everything. Um, it, and it's pretty entertaining. It's just funny to see all these other characters like trying to get a word in edgewise and her just like barreling over them and just going on and on about like inane things. Um, and then there, there's like a big, one of the biggest like turning points of the books or of the book comes later on when, yeah, you, you, as you referenced, Emma sort of insults Mrs. Bates about um, basically calling her out on like saying she says something about like, th- you know, and she needs to say three dull things in order to to like interest uh, somebody. And she's like, well, you shouldn't be limited to that. Like, are you, you basically you're going to say way more than that. And it was pretty insulting, I guess. And. I don't know. It didn't seem that bad to me, but, but, but in this society, it's like a whole, like how not fucking cool, dare not you. cool. Yeah. And then like, you know, uh, Knightley comes in and tells her like, you know, you got to think about the life she's had. She's had a really difficult time and like all this stuff. And then, and then Emma feels really bad about it. Yeah. Um, but again, like a lot of the emotion is sort of with removed. I don't know. Um, I felt like this was one of the more like emotional scenes. It just is. Cause it was clear how, how much this affected her. Um, and she she was like crying and sobbing and yeah, right. But it's still sort of reported. It's kind of reported that she was she spent the next few days crying about this. It's told to us. Oh, you know, she felt so bad and she cried about it for a few days before she, you know. And it's like instead of like a scene <laughs> with her thoughts engaging with the emotion, is is what I'm saying. I, I felt like it was sort of denied to me. But it's 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 stylistic. It's a choice. Um. I do want to, so this whole Mr. Elton thing is interesting, right? Like, he clearly likes her, and she thinks he likes Harriet. Um, Knightley has basically told her that she's wrong about this. And then there's this this um, ride they take in a carriage. And he professes his love to her in the carriage. 
And it's like the most awkward thing she's ever experienced. She has to shut him down. And she's like, oh, my God, how can you like me? You've been you've been coming on to Harriet all along. And he's like, I haven't come on to Harriet at all. What are you talking about? Because everybody's misunderstanding each other's motives and actions. Um, and uh, that was a moment, again, that is reported in a way. I wanted I wanted that scene and um, because that scene would have been interesting. And instead, it, we 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 don't we get it secondhand, kind of. Um, and and that that's like an example of what I'm talking about with the, it's like the emotion is there within the story, but it's not given to us. I yeah, I totally get it. I, I see where you're coming from. All right. So meanwhile, tensions rise between the Eltons and Emma as Mr. Elton resents that Emma judged him only worthy of marrying her lower status friend. Moreover, Mrs. Elton covets Emma's centrality in Highbury's social scene. The Eltons take out their frustrations with Emma on Harriet, especially when Mr. Elton publicly snubs her at a ball by refusing to dance with her. Mr. Knightley comes to Harriet's rescue, and soon after, Harriet confesses to Emma that she has an anonymous new love interest. Emma, who has just witnessed the romantic incident of Harriet's rescue by Frank from a band of itinerant individuals who threaten her, imagines that Frank is the new love interest. Later, when Emma learns that Frank and Jane have secretly been engaged and breaks this news to an indifferent Harriet, Harriet delivers the blow that the object of her affections is Mr. Knightley. A horrified Emma realizes that she does not want Mr. Knightley to marry anyone but herself. She puts purposeful distance between herself and Harriet, fearing that she has lost Mr. Knightley forever. However, Mr. Knightley confesses his love for Emma, and they get married. Harriet, meanwhile, through a chance encounter, finds her way back to Robert Martin. As they have married into different social classes, Emma and Harriet must be more acquaintances than friends. Um, and I think we end the novel with several like marriages in a row. <laughs> um, everybody gets married. Um, okay, so a lot of big reveals and, and sort of stuff here happens all at the end, and I, I definitely have thoughts about a lot of them. Um, but where do you want to start? The big moment that I think a lot of people are going to gravitate towards is the moment where, you know, Emma feels all is lost. She thinks that she's not going to be able to get Mr. Knightley and this, like the way that then Mr. Knightley conveniently also loves her back and, and like everything cascades from there. Um, that moment of like not realizing you want something I think is, is an important one in this story specifically. Um, and, and like, I, I already kind of hinted at this idea, but like, you know, you can't see past your own wall that you've set up and, and like um she just wasn't wasn't interested in seeing someone like mr knightley because she had if she was to get married at some point she saw herself with someone like frank or she saw herself you know she she kept assuming who she should be with and then um didn't allow herself to see the, the thing that's more genuine and i think maybe the sort of the repression of this era is to blame too it, it, like you're you're supposed to be with a perfect mate and some of the time it's arranged and then uh, in this situation, they, they, you know, they bicker back and forth. They have this this interesting relationship that you wouldn't think is traditional in in this era. So when she finally does realize it, she's like, oh, I love him because I like legitimately love him. So I think I think that'll be a big moment, especially, you know, once we see it in the movie, I'm sure it'll be played up for a massive reveal drama. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm i going to be curious to see how it plays in the movie. I, I have kind of a different read of the ending of this novel, which I'm going to get into. But first, I want to touch on a scene that happens leading up to this. And that's this um, attack. The ha it like yeah. happens off page. 
Yeah. So, like, um, so they use they use uh, a term that is not it's considered racist these days, but it's for a group of Romani people um, mm-hmm. who uh, attack them and try and rob them and do very like uh, it's it's kind of a racist characterization of of people like this. Um, it's kind of this knight in shining armor moment where Frank can come in and save Harriet, and uh, Emma thinks like, "Oh, this has sealed it now. This is like this the moment has created a romantic." you know, uh, a pathway for this love to flourish. And then when Emma or uh, when Harriet starts talking about how she actually thinks she loves somebody else now, she's like, Oh yeah, this is working. It's going to be Frank now. Um, but she's actually talking about Mr. Knightley because he saved her at the ball. Um, so <laughs> again, misunderstandings. Um, but it was just like a weird moment. Like it did not feel appropriate for this novel to have this happen. Um, and again, like I, I don't think it—I don't think it aged very well. <laughs> it was clearly like uh, uh, someone who doesn't understand these people at all and just finds them to be kind of threatening, and just th- just tossed them in as like a throwaway. You know, what's a threat? Okay, some you know, Romani people. Although they use right. the other term. Yeah, I, I, that, it's exactly what it was. Just literally like, oh, you know, who who do I not feel safe around? Or, exactly you know, that that kind and of thing. That, just that something... gave me that like, yeah, that rich white, <laughs> like scared of like anyone who doesn't look like them. Other, yeah, yeah, yeah. anyone who's other, yeah. Uh, so that that yeah, kind of rubbed me the wrong way. But okay, so all that I'm going to set that aside. I just wanted to note that that happened. It was kind of strange. Um, but then we get back into you know the 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 crux of the novel. I read this novel is not having a very happy ending to me. Look, I, I just, again, want to reiterate that Harriet just gets raked through the coals through this whole novel. I, it's crazy. I don't think it's particularly happy for Emma either. Yeah? Yeah. Okay, so so here's why. So um, Emma only realizes that she loves Mr. Knightley when Harriet says that she loves Mr. Knightley. And to me, we've repeatedly seen Emma. She's very clever, but she's not very in touch with her own emotions. And I think what she she's not actually experiencing like an unearthing of some secret love she's had. I think this is jealousy again, because she has an she has a connection with Mr. Knightley, where he talks to her frankly, and he, you know, uh, he scolds her, but she, he's kind of a father figure for her. Um, in a way that her f- actual father is not because he's just too busy worrying about it being drafty in whatever room he's in. And so she immediately starts thinking about how like that is going to go away and that that like panic about that going away. I think she conflates that and thinks it's like romantic love. Um, <laughs> so you think this is a this is a situation where like this marriage is just doomed to divorce well, eventually or, or just unhappy. Who knows? Marriage, or just yeah. being unhappy. But like. Emma is such a like clever. I don't know. Like she doesn't want to get married. She's said it repeatedly. She's independent. She's independent. She and, and she like she has instead decided to marry this guy who's been around her since she was thirteen. He talks about how he's loved her since she was thirteen, which is he was twenty nine when she was thirteen. Yeah. He's sixteen years older That's than her. That's fucked up. That's a little yeah. bit weird. Um, and he's always been like a father figure to her. That's not usually what you want in a romantic relationship you only want more like equals it seems like she's someone who needs an equal who she can like have this have some sort of like uh back and forth with where this feels like it's going to be more traditional he's going to serve the role of the wise man who's going to kind of like tell her how things are and i didn't get any sense that that's not how it's going to play out now like there is definitely some like 
trappings of this being a happy ever after kind of stuff going on. But I felt like the subtext was actually it's not going to be. She's not going to be that happy. I think she's going to be kind of miserable and realize that this is actually isn't what she wanted. I hadn't thought of it like that, but I definitely see that now. Um, It'll be interesting, too. Right. Like, I'd love to hear from our listeners, because I'm sure there are people who see it as Emma learned to love finally after not, you know, this whole time. But like, there's definitely I I agree with your read. Like, I think there's that's definitely holds some water. You know, yeah. She just doesn't seem like the kind of person who's going to be happy in a relationship like this. Yeah. In the long run. Uh, Maybe I'm wrong. But like, uh, you know, and, and again, I. I'm not saying, you know, people have read this book many times and they know it a lot better than me, but this is just my first pass on it and then kind of what, what occurred to me and my my sort of sense of who Emma was and what made me like her as a protagonist frustrated me at the end to see how she ended up. Like, I kind of wanted to see her stick to her guns and not marry, right? Um, and I, know, I understand that's a very modern thing and that would be like way ahead of its time maybe, but... That character falling back into the status quo, marrying like someone who is like appropriate status for her, securing their fi- their finances, and everybody slotting into where they're supposed to be in this class structure, which is where this novel ends. That doesn't feel like a happy ending to me. Maybe that's because I'm a lefty, and <laughs> this feels very <laughs> you know status quo conservative to me. Um, but uh, so maybe I'm bringing my own shit into it. But still, that's just how I read it, and. Um, I don't know. I, I didn't feel as like, like I felt happy for Elizabeth Bennett and, and um, the other guy. What's his name? <laughs> uh, Mr. Darcy. Mr. Darcy. Right? That's the guy's name. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mr. Darcy. I'm bad with character names in general. It's not just these books. <laughs> um, I genuinely was happy for them. I felt like it was this like really good romance and I like the way it ended. Um, but here. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And I'm going to be curious to see in the movie if, if they lean heavily in one way or another, if I have any of these misgivings um, or if they play that up or not. I'm really curious. So we are going to be watching the 2020 film. Um, that'll be the one we're going to cover. It's very it's recent. Um, I hear good things about it. Um, and so we'll be covering that coming up soon. But we're actually going to have to release a bonus episode uh, to the main feed next week. Uh, because of some filming you're doing um, to where yeah. we're not, you're not going to be available to record. So it's unfortunate we don't want to do it, but we are going to have to do that. We will also be covering Clueless, uh, which is, I was looking at, like one of the original movie adaptations of Emma is considered, uh, is Clueless. Uh, and we will be covering that on our Patreon at some point here, either this month or next month. I'm not sure, uh, but pretty soon, I think. Um, and if you'd like to go to our Patreon uh, to support us, that's uh, patreon.com slash ink to film. And you'll be able to get that episode when it comes out. Now, we are releasing some stuff to the main feed, but that's still like a year or two out, um, whereas you'll get the more recent stuff that we've been doing. Um, and we'd love to have your support on there. Just a few bucks goes a long way for a small podcast like us. Um, if you like this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating and review, um, whatever app you chose to listen on. And again, like you don't have to have listened to our entire podcast to leave a rating and review. You can just like this one episode. Um, I think that's totally legitimate way to rate or review a podcast because a lot of people just dip in and listen to like one or two. And it's, it's still valuable to see somebody just say like, hey, I listened to the Pride and Prejudice or listened to the Emma coverage. Really liked it. Left a review. I think people will love that. Yeah, and if you didn't like it, fuck off. No, <laughs> if you didn't like it, move on. <laughs> Be sure to also connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. And thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. 
Yeah, I'm really excited to watch this movie now. You know, Anya Taylor Joy stars in it, yeah. and and uh, that'll be coming, I believe, in two weeks. They'll just watch your feed. You'll get it. You'll get yeah. it when it comes out. Um, I, I'm really curious about this movie. I've heard good things. Uh, Anya Taylor Joy uh, apparently is really good in it. That's what I've been seeing. Um, excited for that. I think uh, Woman Director, which is always great. We haven't been able to cover great. any of those. Um, so excited for that. And uh, until next time, keep adapting. Yeah.